chapter three of the fathers of the constitution by max ferrand this librivox recording is in the public domain the confederation when peace came in seventeen eighty three there were in the united states approximately three million people who were spread over the whole atlantic coast from maine to georgia and back into the interior as far as the allegheny mountains and a relatively small number of settlers had crossed the mountain barrier about twenty per cent of the population or some six hundred thousand were negro slaves there was also a large alien element of foreign birth or descent poor when they arrived in america and although they had been able to raise themselves to a position of comparative comfort life among them was still crude and rough many of the people were poorly educated and lacking in cultivation and refinement and in a knowledge of the usages of good society not only were they looked down upon by other nations of the world there was within the united states itself a relatively small upper class inclined to regard the mass of the people as of an inferior order thus while forces were at work favorable to democracy the gentry remained in control of affairs after the revolution although their numbers were reduced by the emigration of the loyalists and their power was lessened the explanation of this aristocratic control may be found in the fact that the generation of the revolution had been accustomed to monarchy and to an upper class and that the people were wont to take their ideas and to accept suggestions from their betters without question or murmur this deferential attitude is attested by the indifference of citizens to the right of voting in our own day before the great extension of woman suffrage the number of persons voting approximated twenty per cent of the population but after the revolution less than five per cent of the white population voted there were many limitations upon the exercise of the suffrage but the small number of voters was only partially due to these restrictions for in later years without any radical change in suffrage qualifications the proportion of citizens who voted steadily increased the fact is that many of the people did not care to vote why should they when they were only registering the will or the wishes of their superiors but among the relatively small number who constituted the governing class there was a high standard of intelligence popular magazines were unheard of and newspapers were infrequent so that men depended largely upon correspondence and personal intercourse for the interchange of ideas there was time however for careful reading of the few available books there was time for thought for writing for discussion and for social intercourse it hardly seems too much to say therefore that there was seldom if ever a people certainly never a people scattered over so wide a territory who knew so much about government as did this controlling element of the people of the united states the practical character as well as the political genius of the americans was never shown to better advantage than at the outbreak of the revolution when the quarrel with the mother country was manifesting itself in the conflict between the governors and other appointed agents of the crown and the popularly elected houses of the colonial legislatures when the crown resorted to dissolving the legislatures the revolting colonists kept up and observed the forms of government when the legislature was prevented from meeting the members would come together and call themselves a congress or a convention and instead of adopting laws or orders would issue what were really nothing more than recommendations for which they expected would be obeyed by their supporters to enforce these recommendations extra-legal committees generally backed by public opinion and sometimes concretely supported by an organized mob 
would meet in towns and counties and would be often effectively centralized where the opponents of the british policy were in control in several of the colonies the want of orderly government became so serious that in seventeen seventy five the continental congress advised them to form temporary governments until the trouble with great britain had been settled when independence was declared congress recommended to all the states that they should adopt governments of their own in accordance with that recommendation in the course of a very few years each state established an independent government and adopted a written constitution it was a time when men believed in the social contract or the compact theory of the state that states originated through agreement as the case might be between king and nobles between king and people or among the people themselves in support of this doctrine no less an authority than the bible was often quoted such a passage for example as second samuel verse three so all the elders of israel came to the king to hebron and king david made a covenant with them in hebron before the lord and they anointed david king over israel as a philosophical speculation to explain why people were governed or consented to be governed this theory went back at least to the greeks and doubtless much earlier and though of some significance in mediaeval thought it became of greater importance in british political philosophy especially through the works of thomas hobbes and john locke a very practical application of the compact theory was made in the english revolution of sixteen eighty eight when in order to avoid the embarrassment of deposing the king the convention of the parliament adopted the resolution that king james the second having endeavoured to subvert the constitution of the kingdom by breaking the original contract between king and people and having by the advice of jesuits and other wicked persons violated the fundamental laws and withdrawn himself out of this kingdom has abdicated the government and that the throne is hereby vacant these theories were developed by jean jacques rousseau in his contract social a book so attractively written that it eclipsed all other works upon the subject and resulted in his being regarded as the author of the doctrine and through him they spread all over europe conditions in america did more than lend colour to pale speculation they seemed to take this hypothesis out of the realm of theory and to give it practical application what happened when men went into the wilderness to live the pilgrim fathers on board the mayflower entered into an agreement which was signed by the heads of families who took part in the enterprise we whose names are underwritten do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of god and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic other colonies especially in new england with this example before them of a social contract entered into similar compacts or plantation covenants as they were called but the colonists were also accustomed to having written charters granted which continued for a time at least to mark the extent of governmental powers through this intermingling of theory and practice it was the most natural thing in the world when americans came to form their new state governments that they should provide written instruments framed by their own representatives which not only bound them to be governed in this way but also placed limitations upon the governing bodies as the first great series of written constitutions these frames of government attracted wide attention congress printed a set for general distribution and numerous editions were circulated both at home and abroad the constitutions were brief documents varying from one thousand to twelve thousand words in length which established the framework of the governmental machinery most of them before proceeding to practical working details enunciated a series of general principles upon the subject of government and political morality in what were called declarations or bills of rights the character of these declarations may be gathered from the following excerpts that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights 
the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety that no man or set of men are entitled to exclusive or separate emoluments or privileges from the community but in consideration of public services the body politic is formed by a voluntary association of individuals it is a social compact by which the whole people covenants with each citizen and each citizen with the whole people that all shall be governed by certain laws for the common good that all power of suspending laws or the execution of laws by any authority without consent of the representatives of the people is injurious to their rights and ought not to be exercised that general warrants are grievous and oppressive and ought not to be granted all penalties ought to be proportioned to the nature of the offence that sanguinary laws ought to be avoided as far as is consistent with the safety of the state and no law to inflict cruel and unusual pains and penalties ought to be made in any case or at any time hereafter no magistrate or court of law shall demand excessive bail or sureties impose excessive fines every individual has a natural and unalienable right to worship god according to the dictates of his own conscience and reason that the freedom of the press is one of the great bulwarks of liberty and can never be restrained but by despotic governments it will be perceived at once that these are but variations of the english declaration of rights of sixteen eighty nine which indeed was consciously followed as a model and yet there is a world-wide difference between the english model and these american copies the earlier document enunciated the rights of english subjects the recent infringement of which made it desirable that they should be reasserted in convincing form the american documents asserted rights which the colonists generally had enjoyed and which they declared to be governing principles for all peoples in all future times but the greater significance of these state constitutions is to be found in their quality as working instruments of government there was indeed little difference between the old colonial and the new state governments the inhabitants of each of the thirteen states had been accustomed to a large measure of self-government and when they took matters into their own hands they were not disposed to make any radical changes in the forms to which they had become accustomed accordingly the state governments that were adopted simply continued a framework of government almost identical with that of colonial times to be sure the governor and other appointed officials were now elected either by the people or the legislature and so were ultimately responsible to the electors instead of to the crown and other changes were made which in the long run might prove of far-reaching and even of vital significance yet the machinery of government seemed the same as that to which the people were already accustomed the average man was conscious of no difference at all in the working of the government under the new order in fact in connecticut and rhode island the most democratic of all the colonies where the people had been privileged to elect their own governors as well as legislatures no change whatever was necessary and the old charters were continued as state constitutions down to eighteen eighteen and eighteen forty two respectively to one who has been accustomed to believe that the separation from a monarchical government meant the establishment of democracy a reading of these first state constitutions is likely to cause a rude shock a shrewd english observer travelling a generation later in the united states went to the root of the whole matter in remarking of the americans that when their independence was achieved their mental condition was not instantly changed their deference for rank and for judicial and legislative authority continued nearly unimpaired they might declare that all men are created equal and bills of rights might assert that government rested upon the consent of the governed but these constitutions carefully provided that such consent should come from property owners and in many of the states from religious believers and even followers of the christian faith the man of small means might vote but none save well-to-do christians could legislate 
and in many states none but a rich christian could be a governor in south carolina for example a freehold of ten thousand pounds currency was required of the governor lieutenant-governor and members of the council two thousand pounds of the members of the senate and while every elector was eligible to the house of representatives he had to acknowledge the being of a god and to believe in a future state of rewards and punishments as well as to hold a free hold at least of fifty acres of land or a town lot it was government by a property-owning class but in comparison with other countries this class represented a fairly large and increasing proportion of the population in america the opportunity of becoming a property-owner was open to every one or at that phase would then have been understood to most white men this system of class control is illustrated by the fact that with the exception of massachusetts the new state constitutions were never submitted to the people for approval the democratic sympathizer of to-day is inclined to point to those first state governments as a continuance of the old order but to the conservative of that time it seemed as if radical and revolutionary changes were taking place the bills of rights declared that no men or set of men are entitled to exclusive or separate emoluments or privileges from the community but in consideration of public services property qualifications and other restrictions on office-holding and the exercise of the suffrage were lessened four states declared in their constitutions against the entailment of estates and primogeniture was abolished in aristocratic virginia there was a fairly complete abolition of all vestiges of feudal tenure in the holding of land so that it may be said that in this period full ownership of property was established the further separation of church and state was also carried out certainly levelling influences were at work and the people as a whole had moved one step farther in the direction of equality and democracy and it was well that the revolution was not any more radical and revolutionary than it was the change was gradual and therefore more lasting one finds readily enough contemporary statements to the effect that although there are no nobles in america there is a class of men denominated gentlemen who by reason of their wealth their talents their education their families or the offices they hold aspire to a preeminence but the same observer adds this is something which the people refuse to grant them another contemporary contributes the observation that there was not so much respect paid to gentlemen of rank as there should be and that the lower orders of people behave as if they were on a footing of equality with them whether the state constitutions are to be regarded as property conserving aristocratic instruments or as progressive documents depends upon the point of view and so it is with the spirit of union or of nationality in the united states one student emphasizes the fact of there being thirteen independent republics differing widely in climate in soil in occupation in everything which makes up the social and economic life of the people while another sees the united states a nation there is something to be said for both sides and doubtless the truth lies between them for there were forces making for disintegration as well as for unification to the student of the present day however the latter seemed to have been the stronger and more important although the possibility was never absent that the thirteen states would go their separate ways there are few things so potent as a common danger to bring discordant elements into working harmony several times in the century and a half of their existence when the colonists found themselves threatened by their enemies they had united or at least made an effort to unite for mutual help the new england confederation of sixteen forty three was organized primarily for protection against the indians and incidentally against the dutch and french whenever trouble threatened with any of the european powers or with the indians and that was frequently a plan would be broached for getting the colonies to combine their efforts sometimes for the immediate necessity and sometimes for a broader purpose the best known of these plans was that presented to the albany congress of seventeen fifty four which had been called to make effective preparation for the inevitable struggle with the french and indians 
the beginning of the troubles which culminated in the final breach with great britain had quickly brought united action in the form of the stamp act congress of seventeen sixty five in the committees of correspondence and then in the continental congress it was not merely that the leaven of the revolution was already working to bring about the freer interchange of ideas instinct and experience led the colonies to united action the very day that the continental congress appointed a committee to frame a declaration of independence another committee was ordered to prepare articles of union a month later as soon as the declaration of independence had been adopted this second committee of which john dickinson of pennsylvania was chairman presented to congress a report in the form of articles of confederation although the outbreak of fighting made some sort of united action imperative this plan of union was subjected to debate intermittently for over sixteen months and even after being adopted by congress toward the end of seventeen seventy seven it was not ratified by the states until march seventeen eighty one when the war was already drawing to a close the exigencies of the hour forced congress without any authorization to act as if it had been duly empowered and in general to proceed as if the confederation had been formed benjamin franklin was an enthusiast for union it was he who had submitted the plan of union to the albany congress in seventeen fifty four which with modifications was recommended by that congress for adoption it provided for a grand council of representatives chosen by the legislature of each colony the members to be proportioned to the contribution of that colony to the american military service in matters concerning the colonies as a whole especially in indian affairs the grand council was to be given extensive powers of legislation and taxation the executive was to be a president or governor-general appointed and paid by the crown with the right of nominating all military officers and with a veto upon all acts of the grand council the project was far in advance of the times and ultimately failed of acceptance but in seventeen seventy five with the beginning of the troubles with great britain franklin took his albany plan and after modifying it in accordance with the experience of twenty years submitted it to the continental congress as a new plan of government under which the colonies might unite franklin's plan of seventeen seventy five seems to have attracted little attention in america and possibly it was not generally known but much was made of it abroad where it soon became public probably in the same way that other franklin papers came out it seems to have been his practice to make with his own hand several copies of such a document which he would send to his friends with the statement that as the document in question was confidential they might not otherwise see a copy of it of course the inevitable happened and such documents found their way into print to the apparent surprise and dismay of the author incidentally this practice caused confusion in later years because each possessor of such a document would claim that he had the original whatever may have been the procedure in this particular case it is fairly evident that dickinson's committee took franklin's plan of seventeen seventy five as the starting point of its work and after revision submitted it to congress as their report for some of the most important features of the articles of confederation are to be found sometimes word for word in franklin's draft this explanation of the origin of the articles of confederation is helpful and perhaps essential in understanding the form of government established because that government in its main features had been devised for an entirely different condition of affairs when a strong centralized government would not have been accepted even if it had been wanted it provided for a league of friendship with the primary purpose of considering preparation for action rather than of taking the initiative furthermore the final stages of drafting the articles of confederation had occurred at the outbreak of the war when the people of various states were showing a disposition to follow readily suggestions that came from those whom they could trust and when they seemed to be willing to submit without compulsion to orders from the same source 
these circumstances quite as much as the inexperience of congress and the jealousy of the states account for the inefficient form of government which was devised and inefficient the confederation certainly was the only organ of government was a congress in which every state was entitled to one vote and was represented by a delegation whose members were appointed annually as the legislature of the state might direct whose expenses were paid by the state and who were subject to recall in other words it was a council of states whose representatives had little incentive to independence of action extensive powers were granted to this congress of determining on peace and war of entering into treaties and alliances of maintaining an army and a navy of establishing post offices of coining money and of making requisitions upon the states for their respective share of expenses incurred for the common defence or general welfare but none of these powers could be exercised without the consent of nine states which was equivalent to requiring a two-thirds vote and even when such a vote had been obtained and a decision had been reached there was nothing to compel the individual states to obey beyond the mere declaration in the articles of confederation that every state shall abide by the determinations of the united states in congress assembled no executive was provided for except that congress was authorized to appoint such other committees and civil officers as may be necessary for managing the general affairs of the united states under their direction in judicial matters congress was to serve as the last resort on appeal in all disputes and differences between states and congress might establish courts for the trial of piracy and felonies committed on the high seas and for determining appeals in cases of prize capture the plan of a government was there but it lacked any driving force congress might declare war but the states might decline to participate in it congress might enter into treaties but it could not make the states live up to them congress might borrow money but it could not be sure of repaying it and congress might decide disputes without being able to make the parties accept the decision the pressure of necessity might keep the states together for a time yet there is no disguising the fact that the articles of confederation form nothing more than a gentleman's agreement End of chapter three